another wonderful evening of learning Tanya together, right? God willing. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> this is this is a great chapter. Chapter twenty-five. It's a great chapter because the author did a real build-up. It's been a few weeks, a few months, you know, since we started. This really began in chapter eighteen. Chapter eighteen was the beginning of this new subject in Tanya. And I, th- I think it was like around Rosh Hashanah time, maybe a little bit before <clears throat> when we started. So it's been a little while, huh? And the altar kept on introducing to us new ideas and developing them and building them up for us. But what's the point? The point is here. The point of everything we've been learning comes together in chapter 25. And I want to remind you the context. What are we doing? How did we get here? All the discussions we've had over the past few weeks the hidden love that every single Jew has, every single Jew is even willing to, to, to give up their life for God, the oneness of God, the unity of God, klipa, mitzvahs are oneness, transgressions are separation. What, what, what was all this for? So let me remind you. The Tanya is based upon a verse in the Torah. It is from the very final words that Moses tells his people, the Jewish people. He says, this Judaism, this Torah that I've given you, it is not far-fetched for you to do. God doesn't expect you to cross oceans, climb to the heavens. It's very near for you to do. Very near for you to do. In your mouth and in your heart to do it. Those are the words of Moses. And the author builds the whole Tanya to explain this verse. What the author is saying is that there's some form of perfection that we could expect from ourselves. There's some form of success that we could strive towards, which is realistic and practical and accessible. In the words of Moses, near to you. And a very big part of being a healthy Jew is to have emotional stamina, which is what this verse says, right? You have to serve God with your heart. You know, if you're not invested in something, chances are it's not going to last, right? Like, how long do diets last? (laughs) You have to be emotionally invested. You have to have emotional stamina. There's no emotional stamina. It's a big question if anything could last. And this is one of the ideas that the altar told us previously in Tanya. To be a Jew, to be a successful Jew, and to be a consistent Jew, to be su- consistently successful, you got to have emotional stamina, which is, again, exactly what the verse told us. You have, to, you have to serve God with your heart. So the author explained to us that the goal of life is to be a Bainani. What's a Bainani? A Bainani is not Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. A has got problems. <laughs> a has got an animal soul. A has got a evil inclination, a yetzer hara. So the is human and has bad days and has good days and has temptations and weaknesses, just like all of us. What makes the Bainani special is that the Bainani always remains in power. The Bainani never acts weak, never gives in to weakness. And the Bainani, even if they're not in the mood, and even if it's difficult, will always make the right choices. And the way that this Bainani is able to always consistently be strong 
is because part of being a Bainani is they need to have emotional stamina. If you have emotional stamina, you can be a good Bainani. So the Atreba told us previously in Tanya, this was the theme of chapters 16 and 17, a Bainani has to meditate on a daily basis. Or in the words of the Atreba, a Bainani has to pray. Davening is not about saying words. Davening is not lip service. Davening, praying is a time to emotionally rev yourself up. Work yourself up emotionally. And that creates passions. Which the author calls love and awe. Love and awe are the passions of the soul. You need both for Judaism. You need both for any relationship. A relationship with God needs love and awe, passions of the soul. And then if you have enough emotional energy, enough emotional stamina, you will have the power to make the right choices every single day. That's what happened previously in Tanya. Came chapter 18. And the author of it says, what does a Jew do if meditating doesn't work for them? You know, some people just aren't made. Some people aren't cut out for deep meditations and getting themselves emotionally worked up. You know, this is advanced stuff. What if there's a Jew who has a little bit more of a shallow head? You know, it's not his fault. That's how God created him. And he can't uh, meditate deeply for a half hour or an hour and get all emotionally worked up. He doesn't. He can't do that. Or what did the Jew do? <clears throat> Um, if they didn't yet really learn how to meditate, you know, it's an art. Meditating properly and contemplating and getting yourself emotionally worked up is, is, is it's an exercise. You've got to know how to do it. Maybe you're not ready for that. Is there an easier way to do it? Is there a more accessible path, an even simpler path, to being a Bainani, to being a person who, who's in control, who's in command? Is there a simpler way for me to be an inspired Jew? And the author says there must be. Because you know what Moses says in that verse? To be a Jew is very much within reach, very near to you. Moses doesn't only say it's within reach. He says very. He adds the Hebrew word ma'od. It is very much. And that very, the author has said, it has to be really simple. How could it be so simple? So the author said, let me teach you something. A Jew, besides you know, being able to develop new passions and emotions for God, every single Jew is born loving God from the moment you are born. Simply by virtue of the fact you have a soul. You have a Jewish soul. It means you're madly and deeply in love with God. God matters to you more than anything. How do we know that? <laughs> you know, I don't know if all of us feel that way. Do all of us really feel that we're deeply in love with God? That's a tall order, no? So the author said, look, it's very simple. History has shown to us that any Jew and every Jew is willing to die for God. When a Jew faces a test of faith, faces the ultimatum to bow down to an idol, to convert out of the faith, to deny the, his connection with God, with the one God. A Jew would rather die. And the optimist says, I'm not talking about religious Jews. 
I'm not talking about the rabbis or the fanatics. That's not a big deal. Every religion has fanatics dying for their religion. I'm talking about the simple Jews who know nothing. I'm talking about the heretical Jews. I'm talking about the Jews who mocked God and mocked religion and weren't religious. They laughed it off. Yesterday they're making fun of God. Today they're dying for God. It's not a joke. They're giving up their lives. How do you explain that? So the author says, every single Jew is deeply in love with God. They're more in love with God than they're in love with their own lives, which is crazy. The most primal instinct of a human is to survive. Right? The flight, the, uh, how does the line go, right? A, a flight or die, right? Is that it? No. Fight or flight. Flight or fight, right, right. Fight or flight. There you go. Thank you, Leia. Fight or flight uh, instinct, right? You know, this, this, is, this touches a very, the most essential primal force within us that we want to survive. A human will, will go to crazy lengths to survive. We love our lives that much. And Tani tells us, but we love God even more. If we have to make a choice, live or cut off that relationship with God, the Jew would say, I'd rather die. I love my relationship with God a lot more than I love life, which is really crazy. If you put these two loves side by side, the love for God is stronger in the Jew. So it's we all have that. The ultimate says we all have to be very certain. We all have to be very sure that we have that love. Why don't we feel it? If I'm madly in love with God, why don't I feel that? <laughs> the author says, listen, there's something called, the Talmud tells us about this, the delusional spirit. Every Jew is infected with a virus. And that virus is called the delusional spirit. And what this delusional spirit does is it makes us forget about the love for God. And it makes us not realize that every moment of life touches upon that relationship. Every moment is critical. And this makes us very desensitized and very out of touch with the love. But the love is always there. This was point one that the author had told us. Point one that the author had told us was a Jew has to be certain that they would die for God. Which is an amazing thing. I, I, you know, I don't necessarily feel very in love with God right now. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> and the author was saying, I would give him a life today. Not in 10 years, not tomorrow. It's not theoretical. You as a Jew would die today for God. Happily, lovingly. And without making any, uh, any calculations or deliberations. Without theorizing about it, philosophizing about it, rationalizing about it, it would come naturally. A Jew has to know they would die for God. Why? Because a Jew cannot tolerate being separate from God. Then the Altima told us something else. The next point the Altima told us was every single mitzvah touches that love, touches that connection, every single transgression touches that connection. You could think that when is my relationship with God 
at risk. My relationship with God is at risk. When I face the test of idolatry, to bow down to an idol. And the author explained to us, no, no, no. The smallest violation, the smallest mitzvah that we transgress, that is also idolatrous. That touches the exact same nerve. It's the exact same problem as idolatry. Because when a Jew sins at that moment, they say, I don't know you, God. You have no place. You're removing God from your life, at least for that one moment. And you are separating yourself from God. You are entering into the space of separation from God. In a mitzvah, it's the opposite. A mitzvah is not just, okay, it's a small little detail. A mitzvah is a big deal. A mitzvah is you tapping into that oneness with God. So the second point the Alter told us is, don't think that only idolatry is relevant to your relationship with God. Every mitzvah is critical. Every violation is critical. Every violation, every mitzvah are essentially asking the same question. Are you connected with God or are you separating yourself from God? Says the author, a Jew has to know this. A Jew has to know this. A Jew has to know these two points. Number one, I am deeply in love with God to the point I would die for God. And number two, every mitzvah and every transgression touches that love. That love is under question. That love is under attack by any transgression. And that love is in question by every single moment of connection. The author says something very simple. All you need to do as a Jew is to remember these two facts. And if you will keep on reminding yourself about this inner core of yours, how much you love God, you will be inspired, you will have the emotional stamina to make the right decisions. All you need is a little bit of context and all you need to do is have a little bit of Arouse within yourselves, remind yourselves, inspire yourself, and cut past the delusional spirit that is making you forget about the love. Try to get back in touch with the love with God. Simply remind yourself that you have it. And when you remind yourself that you have it, it gives you a moment of clarity. Because every small mitzvah that we do, on the one hand, you know, it's not a massive moment of faith. It's a small thing. But sometimes the small things is is where it's at. No? Like I was once listening to a podcast with a father who lost, lost his child at a very young age. A very tragic story. <clears throat> And uh, the interviewer of this podcast asked the father, if you could re-experience one moment, what would you choose? If you could be with your son for one more moment, right? imagine a genie comes and says, one more moment with your child. What, what moment would that be? What would you choose? And the father says, I wish I could sit on the couch and do homework again with my child. Homework? And I'll be honest, right? Can I, can I give a little bit of an honest confession here? <laughs> you 
you know, I do homework with, with my children, especially mental. I don't know if I love it. Do I love it? Do I like doing homework? Sometimes he's doing homework. I'm half listening, half in another world, half doing my own thing. And here's a fun thing. I just wish I could just do homework again with my child. It's a moment of clarity, no? Yeah, when yeah, when you have your child in front of you, doing homework is annoying. And what's homework? Homework is nothing. <laughs> I'm being a good father by doing homework. I'm bonding. Yeah. You're bonding with your child by homework. It's not a moment of big fireworks, but this is where it's at. This is where it's at. That you get to sit on the couch together and sit next to each other and you help your child. And you interact with your child. And... If you're doing homework, if I'm doing homework with my, with my child, and I'm busy on my phone while he's doing his, his studies, I'm losing out on that connection. It's not a big deal in the scheme of things, but it is a big deal. I'm right now plugging out from my, the relationship with my child. I'm saying I'm not interested. I'm not here. He feels it. I know it. It's true. The essence of the relationship, the essence of the bond, is not only the big moments. Sometimes it's specifically in the mundane, in just the regular, in what doesn't seem to be like a critical moment. Every mitzvah touches this love. Do I want to be connected to God or do I not want to be connected to God? If you love being connected to God, this small mitzvah, it's not a big mitzvah, this this mitzvah touches that love, touches that bond. And violating a mitzvah, you're plugging out. You're disconnecting. Yeah, it's not one of the big firework sins. It's the homework sins. But this, it's a big deal. So the author simply says, a Jew has to remember that you're willing to die for God. Remind yourself how much you love God. And the author says, I could assure you that if you remind yourself this, then the next time you face a temptation, you know what you're going to say? You know what? <laughs> I think I love God too much for a little temptation to take me over, to overtake me, right? We simply remind yourself. Give yourself clarity. Give yourself clarity of who you are. What do I really care about? You know, there's a, there's a book not a Jewish book. I believe the title is The Seven Confessions of the Dead or The Con Seven Confessions of the Dying. This is a nurse. A nurse wrote this book. And uh, she, for many years, the floor she worked on in the hospital was of dying patients. Patients who were terminally ill and they were in the hospital because they were uh, imminently, right, on their way to the next world. And she had conversations. As a nurse, she had conversations with these people who knew that they have days, hours left. And uh, these patients would open up with a certain candidness and openness about life. And they would reflect, knowing that these are the final moments. And sometimes she would ask them, and she made this a habit of asking her patients, 
What is the one thing you most regret? And she wrote a book with the top seven regrets. You know what number one was? I wish I could live my life true to myself. There's a little bit more to that statement. I wish I could live a life true to myself and not a life based on what others expected me to live. Live a life true to yourself. That's very deep. To live a life true to yourself, you got to know who you are. And then you have to make decisions in life, not based on short-sighted gains or short-sighted pleasures, but to make decisions based on a vision of who am I. That's what it means to be a visionary. A visionary means you're not in it just for what could give me more money today, what could give me more pleasure today, what's more convenient today, but you're being a visionary. I'm living with a sense of identity. I know who I am. I know what my life is. And now I'm going to live my life based on that vision. Isn't that inspiring? If we could do that? <laughs> That's beautiful. How, you know, how many people today could really say I'm living life based on who I am? I've identified who I am. I've identified my core values. I've identified what I care about most. And I make, I make my decisions based on that. The optimist says, I want you to have that clarity. I want you to know who you are and what really matters to you. And it's very simple to know that. You're a Jew. And if you're a Jew, you could be 100% sure that the thing that matters most to you is your connection to God. The proof is you are willing to drop everything just to not drop, just to not compromise that relationship with God. That's what matters most to you. That's the real you. Everything else that you care about, <laughs> that's just outer layers of the onion. That's peripheral stuff. The real you is that I am a Jew and I'm willing to die for it. If you have that clarity, the little decisions in life are easy to make. And the author says, if you simply remember this, it's a very simple thing to remember. And you remind yourself this. And you have to inspire yourself. Who am I? Who am I really? What does it mean that I'm a Jew? That will give you the emotional stamina. One final note, and then we're going to read inside. On the one hand, we are a religion that celebrates life. We are a religion of life. We're not a religion that celebrates death. We're not a religion that looks to have its members die and give up their lives and be martyrs, right? God says, I want you to choose life. I want you to live life. And we celebrate life. We don't celebrate death. At the same time, there is a mitzvah to give up one's life for God if that's what is demanded of us. which is especially by the three, what we call the cardinal sins, right? There are three mitzvahs, there are three prohibitions that the Torah tells us these are red lines, that you cannot cross these. Idolatry, adultery, and murder, right? So even though the Torah generally does not want us to die for God, the greatest mitzvah you could do is to die for God. 
And self-sacrifice, the mitzvah of sacrifice, of self-sacrifice, is one of the greatest mitzvahs in the Torah. And in essence, the whole verse of Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is God, is the verse that inspires self-sacrifice. Whenever a Jew give, gives up their life for God, those are the words they say, Shema Yisrael. The only thing that matters to me is God. The idea, the concept of self-sacrifice is very vital to Judaism. You know, I saw something so interesting. I saw this a week or two ago. The Rebbe had a private audience with a educator of school children, of Jewish children. And the Rebbe said, we have to speak more to the children about self-sacrifice, about Mesirat Nefesh, about the self-sacrifice of the Jewish people. And the Rebbe said, it's a problem that today we don't speak about it enough. Now, you know, this was in the 60s. You know, the Holocaust was still fresh memory. Who wanted to talk about Jews dying? Nobody wanted to talk about Jews dying after six million were just burnt. So nobody wanted to talk about it. But the Rebbe said it's very important. We need to teach children about it. And the Rebbe said it's not, you know, don't speak about it in a, in a negative way, in a morbid way. Oh, we have to die. Jews suffered. It's not about the suffering. We have to speak about it with a sense of pride. Look how powerful the Jews are. Look how a Jew is willing to sacrifice their lives. The stories of the sacrifice of the Jews have to be shared with children with a sense of pride, with a sense of identity, to bolster their identity. The author is going to argue in this chapter of Tanya, we need to remember that we are willing to live, to give up our lives for God. God willing, we'll never have to do it. None of us and nobody alive today should ever have to sacrifice their lives for God. But we have to know it. We have to know that we would do it. Because that gives us clarity of who we are and clarity of what matters to us. And that knowledge gives us emotional stamina and it gives us a sense of vision to make choices. Dear friends, let's learn. How are we doing? This is heavy, no? <laughs> Dear friends, let us learn chapter 25. Living with your power of sacrifice. Part 1, Awakening from the Delusional Spirit. Says the author, I like this. This discussion in chapters 18 to 24 <coughs> will enable us to understand the verse, right? the verse that the whole Tanya is based on. Rather, the thing is very much within reach for you, etc. Moses told the Jewish people, it's very much within reach for you to serve God with your heart, to succeed in living life as God wants you to. And now that we learned about the hidden love and what the love is all about and about how we want to be connected with God, now we can understand what it means to be a Jew and how to be a successful Jew. Says the Alter Rebbe, to be a Benini is very much within reach. Why? Since at all times and at any moment, you have the power and the ability to rid yourself of the delusional spirit and the unconsciousness inside of you. Right? The delusional spirit clouds your judgment, 
doesn't allow you to be in touch with the sense of love that you have for God, and it makes you unconscious to it. It makes you forget it. You could shake it off. How? Says the author of it, by reminding yourself, simply remind yourself, and awaken, and by awakening, your love of the one God, which without any doubt, is definitely dormant in your heart. All you have to do is remember. Remember that you have it. And when you remember you have it, it gives you clarity. And this is the truth of the words that the thing is very much within reach for you in your mouth and in your heart. Moses told the Jews, it's, easy, it's within reach for you to serve God with your heart. How could it be easy and simple for a Jew to serve God from the heart? To have that emotional energy? Explains the author, for you already have this love in your heart. It's already there. You were born with it. And included in the love is also reverence. There's love and reverence, love and awe. And as the author told us earlier in Tanya, you need both. Every relationship needs both. Love and respect. Love and awe. Love and reverence. Only one is not a real relationship. So the author says every single Jew is born with those emotions. Continues the author, but namely, what is this relationship? What is this deep love that we were born with that's dormant in our heart? Namely, you love God so much that you don't want to be separated in any way from his oneness. This is what this is. This is what your love wants. Your love loves God too much. You don't want to be separated. Even if this means actually giving up your life. To the point you'll even give up your life. And the author says this love and sacrifice don't or doesn't. What's proper grammar here? This love and sacrifice don't stem or doesn't stem? What would you say? Doesn't? Let's change it to doesn't. We'll have to edit it. This love and sacrifice doesn't stem from some reason or graspable logic, but simply because of the divine nature within you. A Jew doesn't start thinking and rationalizing and calculating when it's time to go through life for God. It happens so instinctively. We have a holy divine nature inside of our souls, and we just can't help it. A Jew gives up their life for God. And here's the key idea. So what do you have to tell yourself? You have to remember that I love God so much, I'm willing to die for God. And if so, you have to keep on just simply tell yourself this. This is the critical point. Page 189. And if the dormant love can inspire you to even give up your life for God, all the more so can it inspire you to break free from your desires. Something which is clearly easier than the torture of a martyr's death, which your soul would be willing to undergo if need be. Let's think about this for a moment. What do you have to tell yourself? I'm willing to die for God. That's how much I care. That's how much I love God. I'm willing to die for God. And right now, I am not facing a test of death. Imagine... Imagine you are trying to keep kosher better. All right, you, you, you weren't raised eating kosher, and you decided recently, I'm going to try eating kosher better. 
and you're going a week or two keeping kosher. You made certain commitments. And imagine today you just happen to pass by a non-kosher restaurant and you've already kind of made this decision, I'm not going to eat from, uh, I'm not going to eat non-kosher. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what? But I really remember that great dish. And, uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> I didn't keep kosher last week. I'll just have this dish today and then tomorrow I'll be back with trying to do kosher again. It's not a big deal. It's not like I've been eating kosher my whole life and this is my first time breaking. Okay, so today's a bad day. Today, I went on vacation. You know, on vacation, the rules don't matter. <laughs> no, whatever. You have to simply tell yourself, you know how much I love God? I love God that much, I'm willing to die for God. And here, all I want is a, is a, little, is a little bit of food. <laughs> this is easy. This is the easy stuff. I could overcome this temptation. I could overcome this moment, this temporary pleasure for the love of God. You know, I once read, fascinating, I once read this in a, uh, a psychology article. They said that uh, they've tested like brain neurons, pleasure, the, the pleasure neurons of the brain. You know when you walk into a restaurant and you're sitting there and you make an order and the food comes out and you're just filled with all these, right? The pleasure neurons are firing, right? Oh, that food looks so good. That food smells so good. All that pleasure that the good food gives to you is already out of your system by the time you pay your bill. Which means the pleasure of eating good food in a restaurant does not last even till when you walk out of the restaurant. It's gone by then. It is so temporary, it is so fleeting. So you want to eat something non-kosher because it's really, 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 really good. And come on, God, it's not that big of a deal. Remind yourself something. It is a big deal. Everything is a big deal. I'm telling God that my desires are more important than you. I'm willing to ignore you. I'm willing to say, you're not in my life right now. I'm willing to separate myself from you just for five minutes. Right? Nothing personal, God, but I'm just going to be doing my own thing right now for the next five minutes. I'm separating from you. For five minutes of pleasure. The ultimate says, it's not a high cost. <laughs> you're even willing to die for God. It's not a hard choice to say, you know what? This, this matters too much to me. I'm going to forego five minutes of pleasure. It's easy. But you just have to make that choice. You have to be a visionary. You have to remember how much you love God. And then it's an easy calculation. I love God too much. This is, of course I won't do this. This is not a big deal. Says the author, let's continue. It is easier to overcome your evil inclination. It's much easier to overcome your evil inclination than it is to die, right? To turn away from evil. And avoid transgressing any prohibitions, even a minor rabbinic prohibition, so as not to transgress God's will. This is much easier. Simply avoid transgressing. Why? Since at the moment of transgression, this is the key idea, at the moment of transgression, you become separated from God's oneness as if you had literally worshipped idols, as we discussed at length in the previous chapter. It's very simple. Every transgression. At the moment you do it, you're telling God, I've got another God. 
I am separating myself from you. I'm separating myself from your oneness. Every transgression is idol worship. It is the same energy as idolatry. So every sin is a big deal. Even if it's not a big deal, it is a big deal. Right? Homework is a big deal. Homework is that is is the is the moment of connection. Okay. The author now is going to add a very interesting point. How long you remain separated from God does not matter to your soul. Which means this is not a time thing. Your soul is willing to die for God. Not to avoid being disconnected permanently from God. The amount of time doesn't matter. And the author is going to say something very interesting. You know, no matter how bad of a sin a Jew ever does, there's always, you know, the magic key, the magic pill, which is called, in Hebrew, teshuva. Teshuva means repentance, right? And in Judaism, there's a very big value. Nothing stands in the way of repentance. God gave every single Jew the gift that no matter what they've done, they could always turn back the clock, restore the past, and reconnect. So the altar says, look at that. Your soul is willing to die even though no matter what it does, it could always reconnect again afterwards. So you can't tell your soul, you know what? Let's do a little sin. But don't worry. In five minutes, we'll be right back one with God. That doesn't work. By the way, the author says you can do the same thing with idolatry. Tshuva also works for idolatry. You can't tell your soul, let's serve an idol. In an hour, we'll be back with God. It's not a time thing. The fact that it's only temporary doesn't make a difference for your soul. Even one moment of separation is too much for your soul. Even one moment is too intolerable. The soul says, I'd rather die. Which is unbelievable, huh? Let's read that. The fact that after the moment of transgression, you can repent and you can reconnect with God doesn't make this moment of separation any more tolerable. For even in the case of idolatry, you can repent afterward. And even so, you would rather give up your life. That's the key idea. It has nothing to do with how much time it is. And the author now adds a little bit of a Talmudic, a little bit of a scholarly parenthesis. Let's read. Very interesting. Although the Mishnah states that if a person says, I will sin now, and then I will repent for it, he will not be given the opportunity to repent. Ooh, very interesting Mishnah. Imagine there's a Jew who flippantly says, you know what, let me sin now, and God always gives me the opportunity to repent, right? So I've got a good idea. Let me enjoy life now. In a half hour, I'll repent. Best of both worlds, no? <laughs> I get to sin, and I get to be good with God right afterwards. The Mishnah says, oh... If you're doing that, you're abusing the system, right? <laughs> you're taking advantage of God's willingness to give you the opportunity to repent. The Mishnah says he will not be given the opportunity to repent. So the altar says, no. Don't think this means 
that it's impossible to repent. You're misunderstanding it. Says the Alter Rebbe, this doesn't mean that it's impossible for such a person to repent. Rather, it means that heaven won't assist you and provide you with a suitable moment to repent. But if you seize the moment and repent, then indeed nothing stands in the way of repentance. So the Alter says, the Mishnah, when it says that you are not given the opportunity to repent, it doesn't mean that it's impossible for you to ever do teshuva. What it does mean is that in general, whenever a Jew wants to do tshuva, God literally embraces you and holds on to you and helps you do it. And gives you special opportunities to do it. It's a very powerful thing. God embraces a Jew and helps that Jew get closer to God. There's like heavenly assistance. But if you are flippant and you're taking advantage of the system, God says, I'm sorry. You could do tshuva, but I'm not helping you. So it makes it a little bit more difficult. But the Atavah says, but the point remains. There is no such thing that you cannot repent from a sin. I don't care what the sin was. Even idolatry. So if so, concludes the author Rebbe, bottom of page 189, despite the fact that you could, in theory, worship idols and then repent later on, nevertheless, every single Jew, page 190, every single Jew would be ready and willing to give up his life to sanctify God's name rather than bow to idols, even for a moment, and then repent afterwards. Why? Since the knowledge that he would be utterly separate from God for that moment is unthinkable. For the soul, time doesn't matter. You tell the soul it's only five minutes. In five minutes, we'll be right back a-okay. Soul doesn't matter. The author is going to tell us the soul lives above time. The soul is a godly force. Time itself is part of nature. The limitations of time and the transience of time. That is all one of the elements of nature. The soul lives above nature. You say it's only five minutes, the soul says, I don't care. You're giving me a separate a separation from God. I don't want that. I'd rather die. So the author is just is, is emphasizing how powerful this love is, that it's not even a matter of time. The soul is not saying I'd rather die than live for 40 years without a connection with God. It's not about how much time. It's not, it's not about the next 50 years. It's not about eternity. You know, other, other religions talk about eternal damnation. The author says the soul is not scared of eternal damnation. The soul is scared for one second of separation. Says the author, and this is a result of the divine light that is enmeshed in their souls. As mentioned above. Because there's divine light in your soul. So your soul couldn't care less that it's only a five minute separation. And this divine light, which is not influenced by the passage of time at all. Rather, it transcends time and even controls and governs it as is known. God is not bound by time. And the godliness inside of our soul is also not bound by time. So you say it's only five minutes of a sin. The soul says five minutes? <laughs> I don't live within time. Five minutes is an eternity. Five minutes lasts forever. Five minutes is a reality. 
To you, it becomes history. But in reality, it's a reality of life now. I am separate from God. I have separation from God in my existence. And the soul says, I'd rather die. So what's the point? The author says, simply remind yourself. Give yourself that sense of clarity. Give yourself that sense of vision. And give yourself that sense of identity. I know who I am. I know what I care about. I'm willing to die for God. This little moment of temptation, this little moment of desire that God doesn't want me to do, this is easy. I could easily tell myself, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. It doesn't fit me. And if you remind yourself that, you'll have the emotional stamina to always make that good choice. Okay. Until now, the author was only was talking about um, the author was talking about sins and transgressions. The author says it also works to help you do mitzvahs. Whenever you're facing the temptation to not do a mitzvah, this will help inspire you to do the mitzvah. Continues the author the middle of page 190. And so too, your dormant love, once awakened, will help you in the area of positive mitzvahs and in doing good. It can inspire you to be strong like a lion. That's what our sages tell us. A Jew has to be strong like a lion with might and determination of the heart to fight the negative impulse that causes your body to feel heavy and makes you lazy, which stems from the animal soul's element of earth. A Jew has to be full of alacrity, zest, enthusiasm. Let's get, let's get moving. Let's do stuff. And the animal soul is always telling you, eh, calm down, take it easy, don't work so hard. we got to fight back against that. Says the author, but laziness holds you back from, <coughs> from pushing your body enthusiastically and expending all types of effort and labor necessary in serving God, which requires exertion and drive. Being a Jew is not a walk in the park always. There's the parts of Judaism we all love and we do, and we do them happily. But a lot of being a Jew is exertion. You gotta schwitz it out. Being a Jew is easy. No one said being a Jew is easy. Being a Jew is, is a joy, but no one said it's easy. Being a Jew is hard work. Being a Jew, you gotta exert yourself. And we have to fight against our Yetzirah, against our animal soul, to not be lazy. What do you got to do? So let's think the scenario. You could wake up early to put on tefillin before you go to work. Right? It's, a, it's a scenario. Or you could push yourself to wake up early and go to shul and daven in the morning. But then comes your animal soul and says, Nah, you did it yesterday. Today we're tired. Let's go to sleep. Let's give ourselves an extra hour of sleep because we're very tired. Okay, today I'm not going to put on tefillin. Today I'm not going to shul. That's the laziness. Or you got a Torah class, you got a daylight class that Wednesday night. And the animal soul says, oh, we're tired today. It's so dark outside. We're yawning. We're not going to go to class tonight. Next week we'll go. Tonight we'll go to sleep early. 
I got to leave the house, a schlep, go from class to 7.30 to 9 o'clock at night. A Jew has to fight back against that. A Jew can't give in to that laziness. To be a Jew means you're working, you're going beyond your comfort zone. Schwitz it out a little bit. So you'll be tired. You'll lose an hour of sleep. So what? This is what the mess demanded of you to be a Jew. Judaism is not a smorgasbord. Take what you like, don't take what you don't like. It's hard work here. Gotta work hard. And to be a Jew, to be a successful Jew means that you're ready to make those sacrifices. I sleep less this week. I work hard. I do things even when I don't like doing it. And a Jew has to make those choices. And the stamina to make those choices comes from reminding yourself that I'm willing to die for God. If I'm willing to die for God because I love being connected to God, then learning Torah today is going to help me be connected to God. If I'm willing to die for God, how much more so should I be willing to overcome my laziness and go learn Torah tonight? And go put on tefillin tomorrow? And go and make sure that I prioritize to be home in time to light Shabbos candles on Friday? It's small things, but it's so easy for the laziness to come and creep in and, eh, not today. You got to fight that back. The author is, is going to give us a few examples. For example, says the author of it, for example, to toil in the study of Torah. Don't just learn Torah and you're at your comfort level. Toil in the study of Torah. You got to schmitz when you learn Torah. To study in depth. Study hard. Study deeper than you than what's comfortable to study. And to verbalize the words. Say it with your mouth. There's a very big value. To, when you study Torah, don't just read it like you're reading a novel. Say it with your mouth. Say the words. If you've ever gone to yeshiva, you'll see. Yeshiva's always very noisy. You know what I'm talking about? In a yeshiva, you study out loud. Study with your mouth. Say the words. And that's a lot harder to do. It's a lot easier to sit back on a couch Sit back on a recliner with a book and read a book. When you study Torah, no, you got yes. Say it with you. It, it takes energy, so that your mouth doesn't stop studying. In accordance with the statement of our sages, a person should always place upon himself the work of studying Torah, as an ox accepts the yoke and as a donkey its burden. You got to study Torah with a certain sense of. It's a yoke. Can I make a little bit of a confession here? Personal confession? I very much enjoy studying Torah. But my preferred way to study Torah is on the couch. Alright? It's a confession. And if I could even spill the beans a little bit more, it's not even my fault. I get it from my father. My father is a tremendous Torah scholar. And, uh, you know, if only I could get close to his level of Torah study... But he studies Torah on the couch. He enjoys it. Now, I know that it, that's wrong. Meaning, uh, Torah study should happen at a table and you should be, you know, lean into the Torah. And it's, it's even interesting, even the optics of it. Torah shouldn't be that you take a Torah book and the Torah book has to meet you at your relaxed angle. The opposite. You have to bend toward the Torah. Right? You have, it's like a yoke. Right? Torah can't be just a leisurely thing. Oh, when I like doing it, I do it. When I don't like doing it, I don't do it. It has to be a work. It has to be an effort. <laughs> right, it's an interesting posture. Is the Torah 
meeting you at your comfort level? Or do you push yourself to meet the Torah where it is at? Next example, similarly, with regard to praying with intent and mindfulness. Not just to pray, not just to daven, but to focus hard what you're saying. One should pray literally with your full power of attention. You know, it's easy, especially when you get to know the prayers very well, to just say the prayers. Your mouth moves fast, lip service. You've ever seen a firm guy daven? Pages are turning. He's moving along, right? He's on the express train. Moving right along. No. You got to think about what you're saying. Meditate. Concentrate. That takes a lot of hard work. Okay, next example. And also, and also when serving God in your financial matters. Ooh, you got to serve God with your money as well. Such as the service of giving charity. You ought to stretch yourself to the utmost of your ability. You know, everybody gives charity. So there's giving charity at your level of convenience. There's giving charity at your comfort level. Oh, how much do I need to give for my tax write-off? How much could I afford? And then there's giving charity, right, when it hurts. And giving charity beyond your comfort zone. Three examples that ever gave us. Torah study, prayer, and money, specifically charity. To give beyond what is comfortable and to stretch yourself. And so too, says the author, and so too in other areas of the war against the evil inclination and its tactics. Right? In every area of life, in every area of Yiddishkeit, in every area of Torah, the evil inclination is coming, which attempts to cool the passions of your soul. It's telling you, calm down, don't work so hard. It's telling you not to squander your money and not to sacrifice your physical health. You gotta be healthy. You gotta leave some money for yourself. What's gonna happen if you give all your money away? You're not gonna have any, any money for yourself. You can't give charity. You can't go do this because you gotta sleep today. Well, you're not gonna be healthy. Says the author, but it is very much within reach for you to stand strong against and overcome the evil inclination when you take to heart that to succeed against your evil inclination, and furthermore, to do the complete opposite of what it wants, is clearly easier than the torture of a martyr's death. May God protect us. Right, doing a little mitzvah now, and going beyond my comfort zone is much easier than dying for God. And yet, says the author, and yet, you would have lovingly and willingly accepted the torture of a martyr's death, may God protect us, to not be separated from God's unity and oneness, even momentarily, through battle to an idol, God forbid. You are willing to die to not hurt the bond you have with God. So if the bond with God matters to you so much, then let's continue reading, how much more so should you lovingly and willingly accept upon yourself to do the mitzvahs? So as to be connected with God eternally. When you do a mitzvah, you get to be connected with God. You get to be one with God. Which Yathra told us in previous chapters. So if you're willing to die to not lose that connection, this mitzvah gives you that connection. And this mitzvah gives you that connection eternally. When you do a mitzvah, you become one with God, and you connect with God, and that connection lasts forever. So we have to remind ourselves this and inspire ourselves. And say, no, I'm not going to give in to laziness. 
Because being lazy is being short-sighted. To be lazy is not living my life the way I want to live my life. If you want to be successful, if you want to be a visionary, if you want to be in touch with yourself, you got to push yourself. Do the mitzvah. This matters too much to me. Okay, let's read the rest quickly over here. And the author is going to explain how a mitzvah gives you the bond with God. And the author is going to summarize what we learned in the previous chapters. For, this is a deep paragraph here, for when you carry out God's will through the service, through this mitzvah, the innermost aspect of God's will is profoundly revealed in your actions. In your mitzvah, the oneness of God shines. In a way that God's face shines and is abundantly manifest without any concealment at all. And when God's will shines without any hiding of God's face, then nothing can be separate in any way from God and feel itself to be an isolated, independent identity. When you do a mitzvah, you're opening yourself up. This is a window within time and space. You're opening yourself up to be connected with the oneness of God. And therefore, says the Yat Rebbe, when you do a mitzvah, your divine soul, together with your energizing animal soul, and their garments all become merged in total union with God's will and infinite light, as mentioned above. You become absolutely one with God by doing a mitzvah. So if you care to be one with God to the point you're willing to die, to not lose that oneness with God, how much more so and how much easier is it to simply give in to that moment of weakness and push through and say, I'm going to go learn Torah now. I'm going to go learn Torah more than I like learning Torah. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to give charity. I'm going to do any mitzvah because I want that bond with God. So simple, so profound. What can I say? So beautiful. I love this chapter. This chapter is really, it teaches you how to be a Jew. Try to remember what matters to you most. Remind yourself that. And the author says it, it's, it's simple. <laughs> when you remind yourself this, decisions become much easier to make. And fighting off weakness becomes very simple to do. Because there's nothing like having that clarity. Clarity of living life true to who I am. Dear friends, that's today's class. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 25. There's not that much left to the chapter. We're going to wrap up the whole topic. And uh, with that, we're going to do a big wrap-up on a massive chunk of Tanya from chapter 18 to 25. Massive concept. And what can I tell you? I want to wish you all a wonderful night. Thank you all so much for joining. And may God bless you all. This was so wonderful.